This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Dear God, thank you so much that we know that you are love. Thank you so much that we know that you are a God who shares. And Lord God, thank you so much that you chose us to be that recipients of your love. So help us know that, feel that, use that today, we pray. And show us your word is good and wise and meaningful. And we ask in your name. Amen. Amen, Amen, church. Please be loud. I will be too. All right. Here's my question for you. What assumptions are you running your life on at the moment? Yeah, I, I know when I hopped up on stage, right? You assumed something. I don't, know, I don't want to know what it was, but you did, all right? What about the people next to you? What are your assumptions about them as you came to church this morning? Maybe you got a new job. What are your assumptions about that? Maybe you got a new relationship. Maybe you're new to Anchor Church. I'm curious what your assumptions are about who we are as a family here. See, assumptions are interesting things. We, we make them primarily out of knowledge. That's kind of where they come from because an assumption isn't a guarantee. It's not 100% correct. It's just an assumption. But they're built by knowledge. But they also come from fear, which can be very erratic. Our assumptions can also just come from sheer naivety, right? Maybe you're the one I want. You just assume something because you like to be right, and so you just go, you just go at it, right? We love you. You're irritating. Trying to do that, but assumptions typically will come out of fears or knowledge, hopefully, and at times naivety. But do you realize that your assumptions really matter? Because the majority of assumptions you make are about people. The majority of assumptions we make are about people, right? And so then when it comes to looking at mission and what our assumptions are when we are on mission, when we learn about what it is to share our faith, it is crucial that our assumptions are brought before God's word. Because in an assumption, you have the power to bless someone, but you've also on the other end got the power to kill them. You have the the power to raise up and the power to crush with assumptions. Now, I've spent a lot of time in Romans. It's The whole Bible is my favorite book, right? <laughs> I'm a big one. But I spent a lot of time there. And I've enjoyed over the years that God has changed assumptions in me by seeing verses that I've maybe never seen before. And I want to share some of those with you today so that as we make our way through our series, that you're not only looking out for how God's molding you through new things that you will see, but also starting you off on maybe three correctives or three insights that that will change assumptions that you have. And, and And I feel that if we see them, uh, the reality is, yes, you will be able to discipline a five-year-old. You will be able to converse confidently with Richard Dawkins. And by the grace of God, you'll convert your non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. But you'll do way more than that. 
So can we get, can we get into it? Number one? Yes. Man, you guys are sleepy, right? Like the sleepy service is nine. Right? It's like 10.45, sun's up. Um, number one, right? Let's do this. Number one. It is not our job to convince someone they are a sinner. They already know that. It's not our job to convince someone they're a sinner. They already know that. I want to take you to two verses, which I find just breathtaking. The first comes from Romans 7, where Paul puts himself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know Christ, who's enslaved by the law, because he's trying to explain what the law does. And he puts himself in the shoes and he describes himself this way. He says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. God, that's hard to read. But it's supposed to be. Can you see what's in that? Conflict, right? The shoes he puts on creates a persona of just conflict. This is inner sort of wrestling with, I keep doing the things I hate. I don't know why. Conflict is stirring up in this person when you read this. The other verse comes in Romans 2. Look over with me to Romans 2. It's up on the screen, but Bibles are cool. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul is in this little moment trying to help people understand their accountability to God and he mentions that that God designed you in a way that when you look in the mirror, a thought to accuse or excuse you. That your conflicting moment in the mirror, you, you've had those, I have those, I'm assuming you do too. You look in the mirror and go, man, how was today? I'm not the person I want to be. Today I did some good, but, but I had this with me as well. Paul is describing this conflict and his inner wrestle that happens in everyone. And my question is, when it comes to mission, why don't we assume that that is happening in someone? When it comes to mission, why don't we see that people are conflicted? That people are wrestling. See, Paul explains this. He explains it in in, in chapter 1, where he says that the major problem with humanity is that we suppress God. What that means is this. I'll give you an illustration. Um, my uh, eight-year-old daughter, Mima, right? Gorgeous, love it a bit. Super nice. Um, she gets bullied a little bit, right? I don't know why. She's tallest. I, I have no idea why. But 
When she, I remember a year ago when she was in year one, a girl came up to her and said, Mima, we don't want to play with you. Get lost. And the girl put her hand up to Mima's face like this and looked this way. Right? As a dad, that's freaking heartbreaking, right? But when I was explaining to Mima a couple of weeks ago what it means to suppress God, I said, Mima, this is what you do when you suppress God. You go, I don't want to play with you. Go away. You hold him back. That, that, that's the illustration of it. You sort of put your hand in his face. But to do that, you have to hold back the God of the universe. That is a tiring job. So if, assume this. Unbelievers are in utter conflict and they're exhausted. Because you're holding back the God of the universe. And to do so, you have to be so distracted. With everything else going on here, just so you do not turn around. So I think in mission, we get so caught up in the distraction and we fail to see that they are in utter conflict and often very tired. One of the favorite moments I saw, I saw this was with my daughter, Mima. I talk about her a lot. She's just the best. I remember, right? We had lollipops in the house. The house wasn't like full of them. It wasn't like um, the gingerbread house or anything. But there was this uh, stash there for some reason. I don't know why, right? And mom goes, Dad, can I have a lollipop? I'm like, no, you can't have a lollipop. She's like, ah, oh, dang. Uh, Ten minutes later, I'm like, where's mama going? And I look over this little kitchen mansion. We had a table there. I see two feet hanging out from under the table, right? It's not a comfortable place to be under a table. It's a slatted thing, not really cool. Two feet hanging out. I'm like, ah. All right, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on. All right, okay, here's what not to do as a parent. Jamara, are you eating a lollipop? Because you know I told you, you can't eat a lollipop. Don't do that. Do you know what? Number one, she is eating a lollipop, right? She knows that. She's, she's and in her, she knows it's the wrong thing as well. She knows that she's not supposed to be doing that. So do you know what I actually did? <laughs> I didn't do that. Thank the Lord, I'm slightly better at that than that. I've learned a little bit over the, over the times. I did this instead. All I did is I went over, over to the table. I got down with her and said, Maya, can you come out from under the table? She hops out. And, <laughs> and I said, Maya, I don't care about the lollipop. What I care about is that you're hiding from Dad. Can we talk about that? And we did. One of the hardest things I see, and I've seen it in my own life, and I see it in many Christians, is when it comes to mission or pastoral care, what we can often do is we see someone who's fallen in a pit and we walk over to them and we can see them in the pit. And we may have been in that pit before, but we can see them and we look at them and go, Hey, you're in the pit. Looks really deep. I can see you trying a few things out. How are they going for you? <laughs> Isn't that what we've done? Because they look up and they yell at us. I said, I wish I could swear in this moment, but it's getting recorded. They look up and go, of course I am. (laughs) No, duh. 
Guys, that's not the gospel. What does the gospel do? The gospel is that your God saw you in a pit and he hopped in himself. And when he did, he looked around it, assessed it, looked at all the ways you're trying to escape yourself. He grabbed your hands, which were bloodied, of trying to get out of it on your own. And he takes them and he wraps them up. After spending time with you and listening, he goes, do you know what? I know a really good way out of this. Do you want to come with me? That's the gospel. Friends, it's not our job to convince someone they are a sinner. They already know it. They're trying to work out how to get out. What that means, what's the implications for that? Is that as Christians on mission, we are called to enter mess. Are you okay with that? The implication for you and I is that we are not to be surprised about sin. It shouldn't shock us. But are you willing to hop in the pit with someone, listen to them, observe what's happening in their life? Bandage them up when they need to be. Here's a couple of questions you can ask someone instead of yelling at the pit, which sucks. Ask this. What do you hide from? Or what do you hide from others? Or what keeps you up at night? Ask that. Friends, it's not our job to convince someone they're a sinner. They already know it. Number two. You ready? Switch it? Good. Let's do it. Number two. The best teachers for apologetics are found not in libraries but in real life. I'm not sure if you've read Romans before. My encouragement is you get the little ESV journal thing, right? I think maybe a couple up the back. I got this from church the other day. Um, the reason is the Bible's a big book and you'll never read it because it's a massive book, right? So get the little bit, read this, and I'll inspire you to read more in the big book. All right, is that all right? All right, get one of these. These are great. Because the man I sat down, like, I've read Romans 1 8 a fair few times now. Right, over this week, I'm going to pour through it. Read it, um, read it a lot. And one of the things that I keep seeing in Romans is that Paul has a use of simplicity met in real life. As he writes out and explains things, he does it in such a simple way, but they're grounded in real life. A couple of examples of this is when in the first few chapters, he's trying to sort of prove the nature of sin, that we are all under judgment. And he does it in three super simple ways. He goes, wow, number one, God's big. You should know it. Number two, do you know how you judge other people? Maybe there's a moral code. And number three, do you know when you look in the mirror, you know you don't really like yourself and you feel conflicted? There's an issue going on. That's, that's all he does. Then in the next little bit, he goes to look at what the role of the law is. And in this, he describes a funeral, he describes a wedding, and he describes the workplace. See, much of what Paul writes is actually really simple, grounded in real life. But my favorite one is from Romans 6. So if you've got a Bible, open up the Romans 6 in verse 20. Let me read. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regards to righteousness. 
So he's speaking about those who aren't believers, that don't know Jesus, they're far from God, they were slaves to sin, but because they're slaves to sin, they're free from righteousness. Right? There's no code, there's no code on them. And in verse 21 he says this, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? One of his evangelism conversations is this. How's your life going? What are you proud of? That's it. What are you doing in your life that you're filled with shame about? It is such an earthy, earthy statement. What is the fruit in your life? What are you proud of that you are not just ashamed of when you look honestly at it? See, Paul wants to get life up close. And my, my random thing, and I've done this, and it kills me I've done it. But we assume that in mission, it is better to buy someone a book rather than to study their life. Done that? So you meet someone and they've got questions about the gospel and you're like, oh, instead of using my own life or working it out together, why don't I buy the entire 55-book collection of C.S. Lewis? Right? Because he's got it. And there's a lion in this section and there's a witch in this section and there's some really screwed out letter thing going on here. Do you know what? You read them all and we're good. Right? Answers are done. I love you. You're nervously sitting there going, oh man, I bought someone a book yesterday and gave it to them. Right? That's what we do. My question is, why do we do that when so much of our gospel living is based in real life? Your life, my life. It's full of illustrations to understand what the gospel is. Has our faith become too reliant on others' words instead of our own groundedness in this real world? I think it stems from a lack of confidence. Let me give you an illustration. You know the difference between a perfectionist and someone who wings it is? Hang on a sec. Do a bit of a quick survey. Who are the perfectionists in the room? Put your hand up if you're a perfectionist. Good, you achieve much in life. Good on you. We love you, right? Hands up for those who wing it. Yeah, we'll achieve a couple of amazing things, but not heaps, right? Right? <laughs> but they'll be good, right? You're consistent. We're amazing. But anyway, we'll go. Right? Got two different things. Do you know the difference? It's only two things. Number one. The difference is time. Perfectionists assume they have time to get it right. People who wing it love the fact that they don't have time. Right? The second thing is confidence. Most perfectionists aren't confident to rely on what's already in them. Somebody who wings it is. Now, I know that many who wing it aren't confident that it's irritating and they really shouldn't get up and do it, right? Like uh, most weddings you've been to with the MCs, like, I've got this, you know, please, I wish you prepared, right? And they have and they're like, no, it's all good. You know, it's not good. Um, the, it's, it, the difference is time, yes, but confidence. But here's my encouragement. Most Christians act like perfectionists because you assume you have the time. 
And you don't. We don't. We assume we need to get it perfect. But we also lack confidence. Because we fail to rely on what God has already put in us. My wife does a really cool thing uh, when she teaches design at Shillington. Um, she gets her students, and most creatives, you're, you're creative, like, um, there's different types of creatives, but if you're a design sort of creatives, normally you're a perfectionist. But she goes to them and goes, what I want you to do, here's your brief. You've got 10 minutes to market this product. So my favorite one, which we are talking in the car the other night, was uh, she got her class to say, okay, you've got to design a whole marketing campaign thing um, for cat ladies. You know cat ladies, right? Like Simpsons, Washington cat and a little thing, right? I'm talking like over 50 cats, right? If you get under 50 cats, you're not a cat lady. Over 50 cats. Um, and gin, right? So you're going to market gin to cat ladies. Let's do this. 10 minutes, go, right? Her whole class freaks out because they're made up of a bunch of perfectionists. I was in the car with my wife driving home, right? I had the entire design label done by the end of our car trip, right? Like, this is the weird thing. What Christians don't realise is they need to put themselves under pressure sometimes. So here's my implication. My implication is this week at Gospel Community, I want you to do something. I'm going to send out, Brad, a few questions. And what I want you to do is I want you to go, question one, who's volunteering? Someone put little Jimmy Water, put their hand up, I'll do it. And you get them in the middle of the room and you go, great, you have 30 seconds to explain the Holy Spirit. Go. Now, Here's the thing, right? Anyone can do that. If the answer's crap, you need to say that answer was crap. All right? Who's up next? Go. All right? And I want you to do it until they get it right. See, we don't do this stuff as Christians in the workplace. You do it all the time. All right? It takes practice. So to put it on myself, I came up with one for the Holy Spirit last night on the couch. I'm like, hey, 30 seconds. How do I explain the Holy Spirit? Simple. Do you know when you go with your best mate to a wine bar or a cafe and you have this wonderful connection? Because you're your best friend and you're just connecting the whole time. This is great. This is working really, really well. Now compare that to going to a party where you know no one. Right? Pretty different, aren't they, right? The Holy Spirit's like having your best friend come with you to that party. That's all it is. Right? Pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Spirit so I can be with you all the time. And we're best mates. We got this? Good. Wonderful. Move on. Right? We're going to work out how to get to that as a church. How do we explain our gospel without feeling the reliance on a book or a teacher or whatever, but what God's already put in us? I want to challenge you with your gospel community to do that this week. I'm looking forward to funny stories, particularly in mine. That'd be cool. All right, third one. Last one. Good. Let's do it. Last one. The primary outward mark of your faith is not your works, but your thankfulness to God. I find this one liberating. Have you ever met or been in the position where you meet an unbeliever who's just way nicer than you are? <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. 
With a job they're doing, looks like it's going to have way more social impact than yours. Where the interactions they have with those around them are much kinder than the ones you've modelled. With the good deeds that they are doing, it just you look on them and be like, man, I don't even think of doing that. Ever been there? Funny one is that one stumps Christians. Absolutely stumps them. You might be stumped by that at the moment. And it's based on an assumption of this. Christians have this weird escape clause. We live with that happening because we make this assumption that no unbeliever can do good. So we're like, all right, okay, I see your life, but it's just not, it, nah, there's nothing really good in it. And we just try to ignore it and walk away from those things. But the problem is it causes doubt on our own Christian life, doesn't it? We don't know what to do with our own faith on that matter. And we try to just, to, 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 just to push off the reality of who they are. What's really interesting is a couple of verses within Romans that helps us with this. And the first is a correction on the concept of good. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which I read earlier, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What this verse is saying and changing some of our definitions of good is that unbelievers or anyone can do what lines up with the way God made them. We can all do things that line up with what, with what God's good design for us was. Justice, good. Friendships, good. Marriages, good. Career can be good. We can do things that line up with how God was supposed to make us. But there's another correction that comes in chapter 3. In verse 12 it says, For all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so we're left with the question, what actually makes a deed good, according to the Bible? There's something else at play in this. And Paul says it in chapter 1. He says, even though, when, he goes, when people suppress God, they neither honour him as God or give thanks to him. They neither honour him as God or give thanks to him. What defines something as good is not the deed. It's the source of why you did the deed that comes from that. It's your thankfulness. Let me give you an illustration. I remember as a pastor, um, in, it feels like a life ago, uh, I was given the wonderful task of rocking up to a coffee date with a guy who was at our church, a Christian guy who was dating, dating a non-Christian uh, girl. And my task that was allocated to me was helping to break up with her. 
And I'm like, oh man, you serious? Let me chat with Jules on this one. And both of us have been like, they asked you to do that? I'm like, yeah, oh crap. What's this going to be like, right? No, it's not a super fun job all the time being a pastor. Rock up with a coffee date. All right. Number one, God said you need a dumper. So I'm like, in my angst of rocking up to this coffee date, I'm like, I'm not doing this. Or I'm not going to ask him to do it. I know he's not going to do it. I know that he's just going to tell me to get stuffed. All right. But I've got to ask him to do something to help. And I, I came up with this. I said, all right, here's what I want you to do. If you love Jesus... Every time you eat a meal with her, I want you to say grace. Every time you drive in the car with her, I want you to thank God for something. And every time you have a great date, I want you to hold her hand and pray and thank God for it. Sounds simple, right? <laughs> it ain't. That's some awkward times going on. All right? <laughs> That's what's fun about it. That's what's really fun about it, right? It's fun because the nature of thankfulness is thankfulness must come from a deep source for it to be genuine. If he was going to uphold his faith in front of his wonderful girl, it had to come from a thankfulness that relied on a deep source for it to be genuine. It's the difference between someone giving you a, like a gift card for Christmas and a job, right? See, someone gives you a gift card for Christmas, you're like, thanks. That's great. Could have bought it myself, but thank you for the thought. It's not really that deep or genuine, is it? But what if someone gives you a job? That's different. Wow. Thank you. I can, I, can, I can feed my family on this now. I can pursue the career I wanted to now. Thank you. Huge difference. Because the source of your thankfulness matters. My goal was to get this guy to understand that the thing that she needs to see the most is what is under your thanksgiving. And that is a raw, genuine reliance and dependence on God. Why? He gives you everything. He gives you life. He gives you hope. He gives you love. That is what's supposed to pour out of your mouth and your actions of thankfulness that I love him because he loved me first thankfulness is driven and fueled by a deep dependence on God church this is our implication that if we are to help our city understand the God who loves them your implication is this over the next weeks as we dive into Romans, I want you to dig deep. You're going to find God here. You'll find more truth. You'll find more hope. You'll find more love than anywhere. 
And I want you to come to church with a posture of, God is going to show me who he is. I want you to go to community group and go, God is going to show me who he is. And as you do that, my challenge for you is don't just read the Bible on a reading plan, but at least once in your day, tell someone that you are thankful to God And my prayer for you, and I hope your prayer for me as I do this with you, was that when we do that with someone who does not know Jesus, they will ask, why are you thankful to God? Friends, Romans will strip you bare over the next few weeks and bring you to your knees in order that you can meet the God of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let God change your assumptions and assume that He is dependable. If you do, (laughs) you'll be able to discipline a five-year-old. You will be able to confidently converse with Richard Dawkins. And you may even convert your non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. But most of all, you'll bring glory and honor to him who is worthy of it. So can we pray for him? Let's do it.